Gresham College presents Re-Engineering EMU by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Thank you very much, Charles. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, Charles, of course, uh, uh, belying his irrepressible energy, is part of uh, our monetary heritage in the UK. He was a, a chief monetary advisor at the bank uh, quite some time ago when much perhaps too much was expected of monetary policy. And the author of um, one of the more telling laws of monetary economics that I still use often today, Goodhart's Law, no surprise he was chosen to be one of the founding members uh, of the MPC. I've always had a, a sense of, of pride and good fortune that Charles was my tutor uh, in one of the years when I was studying at the LSE. A sense of pride that was only marginally marred by the recollection, a vague recollection, I have to say, that I only discovered Charles was my tutor, I think on the last day of term, when I was desperate to find someone, anyone, who would tell me what my grades were. Talking about European economic and monetary union is the surest way to lose friends and make enemies. It's a deeply religious issue resonates less with the cold calculus of optimal currency areas, more with the, the intangible emotional essence that is individual identity and nationalism. They are believers and non-believers in EMU and never the twain meet. In my experience, one of the few ways in which you can progress a discussion about EMU is to try and sidestep the more religious issues and focus on the, the seemingly technical in the hope that while this may not convert anyone, it will clarify what's at stake. Opacity disarms the zealots. So the question I pose today is not whether EMU will last or not, not whether the UK should join or not, but whether there are institutional changes that would make it function better. Of course, these issues are not entirely separate. The right institutional framework would support EMU's economic success, its longevity, the prospect of British membership. The wrong framework would do the opposite. This is an apt issue today. We have the first real opportunity for institutional change in the Eurozone. There is now sufficient distance from the start date for changes to be accepted as reasonable adjustment along the way rather than attempt to abort the journey. Perhaps, too, the prospect of British entry could act as a, an important catalyst for changes. Europe would be favorably disposed to UK membership today. It would take EMU past the tipping point. In terms of size and international trade, Europe would grow from being the second biggest economic bloc in the world to the first. And this would serve the broader aspirations of the founding figures of European Monetary Union. Some change is likely, inevitable. As Charles was saying, there will be a new ECB president well before the end of the year. And the changing of the guard always provides an easy opportunity for some reflection and adjustment. The ECB has already initiated a study on how it may improve its impact. Earlier, the European Commission proposed changes to the Stability and Growth Pact. 
in part to defuse the imbroglio caused by President, Commission President Prodi's now famous remark that the pact is stupido and changes due. It would be inconceivable that a project so enormous and ambitious in scope would be planned with such perfect foresight that no improvements could be thought of several years after the plan was conceived. But more subversively, the institutional arrangements required for EMU to be launched on time, to occur, to be politically acceptable, would only be the exact same arrangements required for EMU to function smoothly by some good fortune or lucky coincidence. I want to dwell on that point for a moment because I think it helps to explain the challenges facing EMU today. The benefits from a single currency for most European countries was clear. Removing exchange rate volatility for relatively small open economies was an end in itself. But this would also remove the risk premium that held interest rates high holding back productive investment. This picture, which will warm the feelings, will bring warm feelings to many a bond market veteran, shows the wide spread of interest rates that existed in Europe uh, in the last decade and their later convergence as prospects for EMU rose. And when coupled with a competitive exchange rate, this reduction in long- and short-term interest rates delivered a long investment boom in Europe's previously risky periphery, as this chart, uh, this chart shows. But what was always less clear was what Germany would gain from EMU, at least in economic terms, if not political. Indeed, being the country with the greatest anti-inflation credibility inevitably had the lowest interest rates and would therefore have the most to lose if interest rates converged to the average level in Europe. If Germany was to accept EMU, convergence had to be based on Germany's anti-inflation credibility. It seemed logical at the time that the best way to achieve this was to model Europe's new institutions on German institutions, on an image of Teutonic discipline. And in case anyone missed the point, to locate the ECB in Frankfurt. Designing an uncompromising stability and growth pact was about pinning the Eurozone's future credibility to Germany's past and winning German support for the project. It was less about how it would all work, how it all work a few economic cycles and rounds of enlargement later. The pact was designed to deal with the free rider problem that arises when countries share a common currency. Before the arrival of the common currency, the market made a clear differentiation between different countries' bond markets. In the pre-convergence days, this is looking at uh, 1995, uh, well before convergence really began accelerating, the main drivers of this differentiation of bond markets was inflation, deficits, and debt. There's this picture of different long-term interest rates in Europe uh, show. We have different levels of government deficits on the right-hand side to show this as a major differentiating factor. This is market discipline at work. But EMU 
is a whole new ballgame. The inflation and credit risks caused by the fiscal largesse of any single member state would be shared by every member state. This creates an incentive for member states to increase their deficits. They receive the benefits of higher spending, but they share the interest rate costs. To some extent, this is what has happened recently in Argentina and Brazil, where the currency was brought down by the profligacy of regional governments. To deal with this free rider problem, a number of rules were put in place. Price stability is a stated policy objective of the ECB. It is not permitted to monetize debts of any member state. This is all designed to raise the interest rate penalty for spendthrift governments. But this would only work if the markets were convinced that if a member state were to be in trouble, it won't be bailed out by its neighbors. And the markets are unlikely to be convinced of this. Would neighboring countries really stand by and see Italy default with all the widespread and costly disruption to the financial system that this would cause? Remember, the economic activity of national governments is far more pervasive than, say, regional or, 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 or local councils. And once the market began to consider these economic costs of default, would this not lead to rising yields everywhere across the zone? Will this, not lead to, will this not threaten a contagion of defaults? I think these concerns are legitimate. Similar arguments were put forward by Alexander Lanfalusi back in the mid-1990s. To limit the possibility that a country would need to be bailed out, it was agreed in the Stability and Growth Pact of 1997 that budget deficits will be held below 3% of GDP. And the pact is enforced through a range of mutual surveillance measures, public finger-pointing, and ultimately hefty fines. But most commentators today share the view of Commission President Prodi that it's a stupid rule that on the threat of an expensive fine forces European governments to cut spending into the down cycle in order to keep budget deficits below some fairly arbitrary level. It's like trying to limit bankruptcies by fining the bankrupt. Additionally, the pact, in conjunction with the ECB's remit, has given the impression that nobody in the Eurozone owns the objective of output stability. The powerlessness in the face of an economic slowdown stands in sharp contrast to the policy activism on the other side of the pond. Some believe that the euro's weakness in 1999 and 2000 was due to the market's negative judgment on this policy framework. And if this is so, this would be a good reason for change. The litmus test of any fiscal arrangement is whether it's credible with the markets and will reduce investors' sense of risk and uncertainty and the risk premia embedded in interest rates. Of course, lower, more stable interest rates would also facilitate investment and growth. Measuring credibility and risk premia is not straightforward. It's seldom revealed directly. In general, however, we would expect to see four things when risk premia fall. First, we would expect the yield a government has to pay to fund this deficit, the yield over and above the inflation rate, to fall. At the fall more than in other countries. 
We would expect lower relative real yields. Now, one source of differences in real yields is the supply of government bonds, how big the deficit is. And so one measure of institutional credibility is whether real yields are falling at a faster pace than might be implied by the decline in budget deficits, or whether real yields are holding still as the government is issuing more and more deficits are rising. A third thing we'd like to see, we would expect to see, we would expect that the extra a government has to pay for borrowing over a long period compared to borrowing over a short period would fall. The yield curve would flatten. And fourth, we'd expect that for a given economic, for a given level of risks, falling risk premium, more credibility, will lead investors to buy all risky assets, more bonds, more currencies, more equities, and we'd see an unusual amount of positive co-movement of these three instruments. Now, while each of these measures have their faults, has their faults, using them in conjunction should be reliable. And doing so yields a surprise. The ratification of the Stability Pact lowered risk premia in the Eurozone. Between the decade prior to the ratification of the Pact in 97 and the following five years, the average level of real yields in the Eurozone fell significantly. Real yields were falling generally, but they fell more in the Eurozone and more relative to change in budgets than in the United States and other countries. This is in indicated by the steeper line on this chart. Real yields are on the left-hand side. My colleague Michael Metcalf carried out most of the empirical work that I'm showing you today, and another colleague, Chris, who I think is also in this room, uh, prepared these charts. Here I've plotted the annual government budget deficit. That's the, uh, on the horizontal axis. And the level of real long-term interest rates on the vertical axis for the US and the Eurozone um, over the past 17 years. There's a broad relationship between uh, deficits and real yields with the points drifting from the top left to the bottom right. This indicates that higher budget deficits lead to higher real yields. Now, points above the average line that I've drawn here represent years in which the risk premia is higher than average, and points below the line when the risk premia is lower. What's interesting is that since 1997, when the pact was signed, all of the US points lie above the line and all the Eurozone points lie below the line. Reinforcing this picture of falling risk premia in the Eurozone, the Eurozone U curve also flattened significantly between the five years before 97 and the five years afterwards. All of this suggests that the stability pact has served its purpose more than is popularly imagined. That abandonment of the stability pact is likely to be greeted by, greeted by the market with higher real yields and a steeper euchre. But this does not exclude alternatives or adjustments of the pact. Let's try and be more precise about exactly what the market wants. Over the past two years, there have been 400 stories on the newswires and in newspapers relating to the stability and growth pact being breached. This chart shows the spread of these stories uh, over time. 
Now, following a number of studies on the market reaction to news, including, in fact, Charles's 98 paper on foreign exchange markets, it may be possible to reveal the nuances of the market opinion, the market view, by analyzing its reaction to these stories. To conduct this study, we had to streamline the data. Mr. Prodi's famous remark was reported in over a dozen stories over several days. But of course, it's really just one story. We attributed a day to each story and measured the market reaction from the previous day's New York closing prices to the current day's close. We went from 400 stories over two years to 81 separate stories. Running a regression analysis, we found there was no statistical significant relationship between a day in which there's been a story on a breach in the stability pact and our measures of risk premium. But this doesn't mean that these stories had no impact. In just under half of the stories, at least three out of the four measures of risk premium that we look at reacted in the same and strong direction. On examining these stories individually, we found an unexpected and surprising pattern. In the stories on the breach of the stability pact, where the risk premium fell, good news, Invariably, it was because a senior minister is quoted reaffirming their commitment to the pact, as in the case of German Chancellor Schroeder on the 10th of February last year. Sometimes verbal commitment is reinforced with talk of a tax hike, as in the case of a rise in VAT in Portugal last year. Most of the negative stories, credibility falling, risk premium rising, concern speculation of a loosening of the pact. Take an extreme example, the euro weakened by over 1% on the day Commission President Prodi's stupid quote, which raised speculation that maybe the pact would be changed. There are also a few negative stories which point to how the pact is reducing policy flexibility or cornering policymakers. Now, I'm mindful of the fact that the market's reaction to these stories is not all consistent that there's an element of interpretation of what these stories are actually saying. And that we've ended up analyzing a small subset of the original 400 stories. Yet these results have significance in supporting the earlier analysis and be close to the opposite of the consensus view. Two separate studies have reached similar conclusions. The stability pact has brought significant anti-inflation credibility to the Eurozone. In the second study, it would appear that the market is concerned but attempts to make the pact looser, especially when the limits are being threatened. Now, the Commission's recent proposals have an element of this about them. It smacks of moving the goalpost to where the ball is, and the market doesn't like that. It may well be that greater discretion and more use of market discipline would make for better economics and better policies. But the evidence isn't there. There is, though, genuine market concern about a reduction in policy freedom, especially at times of economic or financial distress. An amendment to the pact, a change, increased policy flexibility, but not at the expense of fiscal discipline in the long run, would be greeted positively. Now, this would not be easy to craft, but I don't think it would be impossible either. My preferred solution 
would be to add to the existing pact that in assessing whether a country had an excessive deficit, consideration be given to whether it's on track to achieve a budget, balanced budget across the economic cycle. An independent committee of experts could date the cycle, as happens in the United States, and countries would not be expected to have, and countries would be expected to have a balanced budget from the end of the most recent recession through to the end of the previous one. This assessment would then be carried out when growth is picking up, when it would be easier for national governments to tighten their fiscal belts, and when, if necessary, a fine on those that didn't tighten sufficiently could actually be paid. The principle here is that making sure that countries tighten their fiscal belts at the top of the cycle is as effective at keeping deficits in check at the bottom of the cycle, but is far, far more sympathetic to the economic and political conditions, and therefore far more enforceable. This would be a modest yet significant change to the current arrangements. Let us turn finally to monetary policy. Our analysis suggests that the ECB has had some bad press. After all, inflation is on target. Real yields have fallen. Francesco Gervazzi and others have shown that ECB interest rates have not been much higher than suggested by a standard Taylor rule analysis. Growth is weak, but then monetary policy has been easy if exchange rates and inflation rates are taken into account. Yet there's a palpable sense of incoherency between the ECB's stated goals, its target, and what it ends up doing. Also, the world's most independent central bank seems to be under a surprising amount of political pressure from time to time. The problem, I think, is that transferring the Bundesbank's legal statutes to the ECB may have won support for EMU from Germany, but it's no guarantee of a repeat of the Bundesbank's record. And indeed, it's not particularly appropriate given the very different context of Europe. Enlargement, especially eastwards, to countries that are catching up economically, high growth, high productivity, high inflation, brings with it transition problems that will require more flexibility than the Bundesbank required. Flexibility requires independence, and independence as Europe gets larger and the physical, cultural, national distances between central bankers setting interest rates and their citizens grows, this independence requires legitimacy. The Bundesbank's legitimacy was strong, but it came not from the legal statutes, but from Germany's history of hyperinflation in between the wars. To achieve more flexibility, more credibility, more legitimacy, the ECB could do worse than to adopt certain features of the new monetary arrangements in the United Kingdom. The Bank of England has less independence than the ECB on paper. I would argue it is yet freer from political pressure. Under the British system, the government chooses an inflation target and the bank has operational independence on how to achieve it. The government's choice of target brings democratic legitimacy and also government support for the bank's actions. Operational independence is made credible by there being a single final target 
the appointment of outside experts on the fixed terms, and a very strong degree of transparency. Flexibility comes not just from the symmetrical nature of the target, but the open letter system. Never been used, so it's important to reiterate what this means. It allows the bank to set out in a clear and transparent way its strategy for getting inflation back on target when it's deviated significantly. It's conceivable that faced with a major supply-side shock that a bank sets out an only gradual adjustment towards the inflation target. But by setting out its reasons for doing so transparently and according to a clear framework, this would bring credibility to the flexibility. Using our same methodology of these four measures of risk premium, we find strong evidence that a move to operational independence of the Bank of England in 1997 raised the credibility of monetary policy in the UK and reduced the UK's risk premium. The decline in royal yields in the UK uh, was greater than occurred in the United States, despite the Federal Reserve being seen uh, by some as the most credible central bank today. The angle of the line is sharper, though it's parallel to the improvement in the Euroland. If we were to add the UK data to our previous chart of deficits and real long-term interest rates, we find that since 1997, the UK points are almost all below the line, suggesting the risk premium is below average. It's fallen. The UK has had to pay less to fund itself per unit of deficit. And the UK U-curve has flattened significantly. The features of the UK arrangement could be easily given a European dimension, allowing the European Parliament to define exactly what price stability is through a symmetrical target would bring legitimacy to both bodies and may better take into account the changing nature of the Eurozone as it expands northwards, eastwards, etc. A small interest rate setting committee made up of independent experts ECB executives and some national central bank governors could reduce the voting along national lines and keep the committee to a manageable size. Let me reach some kind of conclusion. There is a wonderful little paper by the Belgian economist Paul de Grauer called Fundamentals Following Market Prices. It is, remember, supposed to be the other way around, prices following fundamentals. But the reality is that too much research is that we find the fundamentals to fit the past price action. It leads to too much importance being paid to a host of coincidences. The decline in the euro in 1999 and 2000 dredged up many a fundamental reason why the euro was going down and would always go down. Eurozone's policies weren't right. The policy framework was wrong. Our analysis of risk premium in Europe suggests that the Eurozone anti-inflation credibility is in fact strong, evidenced by historically and relatively low real interest rates. Perhaps the simple reality was that the economy was weak and as activist policy was constrained, it was entirely appropriate for the Euro to weaken. Imagine what would have happened if the Euro strengthened in that environment. We had a strong Euro, that would have been bizarre would suggest that something was terribly wrong with the framework of policy. It would have worsened the economic downturn. But that is not to say that everything is fine in the Rose Garden. 
especially as it was designed to lure people in without much attention to the experience when they got there. And it's been prickly. It is far from ideal to have the exchange rate do all the adjustment to the economic cycle. The Stability and Growth Pact may not need dismantling, but it needs greater consideration for the economic cycle without providing too much opportunity for shifting the goalposts or cheating. It seems to me that this is possible to achieve by concentrating on a balanced budget across the cycle, but critically making this assessment during the boom, not the recession. In monetary policy, the Eurozone is in a very different context to post-war Germany. What is required today is more flexibility and legitimacy without loss of credibility. A dose, perhaps, of constrained discretion. This is the phrase used to describe the UK monetary arrangements by one of its chief architects, Ed Balls. I have to say, it seems slightly odd to me, a little bit uncomfortable, I'm unused to it, that we now have in the UK institutions in the economic sphere that deserve some emulation internationally. Though it seems appropriate that this should be so because our institutions are neither too rigid nor allow for too much discretion but reflect a rather pragmatic balance. Thank you very much indeed. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk